0: I'm Dr. Megan Corrado, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Scott Giacomucci. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for the invite, Megan. I'm excited to be with you and and the listeners today.
0: Thank you. So let's start off by you um, telling us about who you are.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, I'm a doctor of social work. Um, I'm a board-certified psychodramatist and clinical social worker, Mm -hmm. uh, licensed in Pennsylvania. I'm also a fellow of the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress and an experiential therapy trainer and then i'm also an author researcher a writer so i have lots of different roles Mm -hmm. uh, professionally um as you know i'm also an adjunct professor at at brimmore college in the social work school Mm -hmm. Um, how
0: do you find the time to do all of these things
1: (laughs) (laughs) the most liberating realization i had in my professional development was that I didn't have to do the same thing 40 hours a week, that I could mm. have a, a lot of meaningful part-time roles. And mm. I, joke, I joke with people and tell them that uh, because both of my parents are engineers, uh, I'm very good with efficiency, making things mm. fit together and overlap in a good way.
0: Sounds like an art.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, part of it is art, part of it is is science and logistics.
0: Mm-hmm. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Can you tell us about what you do? You've already um, mentioned some of the roles that you play, but um, if you want to go into detail about any of those particular roles.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm the director and founder of the Phoenix Center for Experiential Trauma Therapy in Media in Westchester, Pennsylvania, uh, which is an outpatient trauma therapy center. So in my role there, I I do trauma therapy with clients Uh, supervise other trauma therapists, and provide a lot of training and education. Mm. Um, And then I'm also the director of trauma services at Mearmont Treatment Center, the inpatient drug and alcohol unit, where uh, basically I I run a lot of experiential groups uh, for clients who are in inpatient treatment. Mm. Um,
0: Can, Can you tell us what you mean by experiential?
1: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Uh so when i meet, when i say experiential i think of experiential therapy as kind of a larger umbrella term for any kind of therapy that goes beyond talk therapy. Mm. So that would include art therapy, uh music therapy, poetry therapy, psychodrama, uh sociometry, gestalt therapy, anything that goes beyond just sitting and talking. Mm. And the two primary experiential th- therapies that I practice and teach are psychodrama, which is primarily used in group settings, and it's, I hesitate to call it role-playing because it's not role-playing like you normally think of role-playing, but it, it uses role-playing techniques to explore different parts of ourselves or to explore our experience in in relationships. Mm. So for example, in psychodrama, rather than talking about uh, somebody who passed away, I might ask a client to choose someone in the room to play the role of someone they love that passed away, mm. and have a conversation directly with that person as if they're here in the room. So it can be a bit more involved uh, in terms of movement and emotions. Um, it it can be a really powerful tool. I'm constantly amazed at where we can go on the psychodrama stage uh, that, that maybe wouldn't have been possible otherwise.
0: Mm. I'll
1: talk more about that throughout the podcast too. It's really my passion.
0: Mm. That's amazing. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story. And every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like most of us in the field, uh, I was really attracted to being a social worker, being a therapist uh, because of my own personal experiences.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, I grew up in a pretty privileged family in suburb of Philadelphia, uh, though I also experienced my own struggles, uh, especially as a teenager, with addictions, with mental health, with uh, death and loss. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, At this point, I've been in recovery from addiction for almost 12 years. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a big part of what uh, kind of led me to wanting to be a therapist. Um, I was introduced to psychodrama when I was 15 and I just found it amazingly powerful and helpful in terms of working through my own traumatic losses, my own emotions, mm-hmm. trying to make sense of the world and, mm-hmm. and dealing with, you know, normal social issues.
0: Mm. So it sounds like you not only have a professional interest in psychodrama and experiential therapies, but you've also been able to experience some of the benefits of it, even at an early age.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I I feel like as therapists, um, our most useful and powerful tool is ourself. And I really think it's important that we're doing our own personal work Mm -hmm. or have had our own personal experiences with the types of therapies that we're practicing. Right. I mean, I don't always share the details of my past with clients, uh, but there's a, I think there's like an existential knowing that comes through uh, maybe consciously, but often unconsciously, just being able to be with someone Mm -hmm. in their pain, their loss, their trauma.
0: Right. Right. Um, It also takes, takes the connections that we build with our clients to another level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, I mean, a lot of my losses and, and trauma that I experienced as a teenager, um, I really made sense of them later by by becoming a therapist and, and helping others work through either what I had experienced or what people I loved had experienced. Um, mm. One of my closest friends died of an overdose when I was uh, um, 17 or 18. Mm. And prior to his death, we had agreed we made a commitment together that we were going to go to school put in the works to get graduate degrees and become therapists to to help mm-hmm. others like us mm. and um you know he passed away um i guess it's been 10 years already well um so when i opened up my private practice in 2015 the original name uh to my practice was in honor of him and it was kind of my way of of fulfilling my end of the agreement and um, allowing him to fulfill his end.
0: Wow, that's so incredibly powerful. Um, what you're sharing now makes me also think of the idea of the wounded healer. And um, in reality, so many of us who are in the, the helping profession have faced multiple forms of adversity and trauma and fear and death and loss. And then on the other end, we also have been able to um, achieve healing and to grow and to thrive and um, to demonstrate our resilience. And And what you're sharing now just reminds me of the fact that all of us kind of have both of these things um, in our narratives
1: yeah absolutely. I mean, as therapists, uh, of course, we're human too, and we've had our own life experiences. I think it really makes a difference um, working with people to have, to have had our own life experiences. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah so let's let's shift gears for a moment. So can you share a few important positive moments or turning points in your narrative?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there's a lot that I could say to this question, lots of different important moments. A couple that come up first, um, I guess specifically around shifting my attention to trauma. I started out in the addiction treatment world, working in inpatient, um, while also working in the prison system.
2: Mm. So
1: uh, when I was in graduate school, I did an internship where I worked with uh, mostly men who had been sentenced to life without parole uh, for murder charges as juveniles. Mm. So I I did a lot of advocacy work and and spent a lot of time working within the prison system and the court systems, uh, which I just found so exhausting and draining and uh, painful. Um, Mm. And I was noticing that so many really all of the clients that I worked with uh, prior to their offense that landed them in prison, they all had really significant trauma, loss, neglect, poverty, collective traumas often too
2: mm-hmm.
1: that just weren't being considered, weren't being addressed. and And I started to see how trauma really impacted behavior later in life. And I was seeing the same thing in the addiction treatment world where we have many clients who would you know come to treatment, go through their detox you know turn start to turn themselves around it and really become different a different person and discharge from our program and and three months later end up back in the program again and what we started to notice as a treatment team is that most of the clients who were kind of designated as chronic relapsers, they all had really unresolved trauma and loss that nobody was addressing across the treatment continuum. Mm. The inpatient centers were saying, uh, you're an inpatient, you're just here to stabilize uh, and detox and we're not gonna touch any of the trauma. We'll refer you to an IOP, an intensive outpatient program, and you can work on the trauma there. But then the client would get there and the IOP counselor would say, you're in transition. We're just going to stabilize you and transition you to an outpatient counselor. And that oh, would you do your trauma work. And it didn't seem like clients were making it there. Mm. Their trauma, their loss was being triggered. And oftentimes they were again, self-medicating and, and ending up back in treatment. Mm -hmm. So I really, I mean,
0: it sounds like treatment wasn't actually including, uh, getting to the root of the trauma either, or the root of what may have spurred on some of the addictive behaviors. Exactly.
1: Yeah. It, it it seemed like a lot of the focus was on symptom reduction, Mm -hmm. stabilizing, um, there wasn't enough, in my judgment, enough exploration of, you know, what was going on that led, led to you picking up a substance or alcohol.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, why did you feel a need to, you know, use heroin, a powerful opiate uh, to numb yourself? What were you numbing? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, alcohol being a central nervous system depressant. Why did you feel the why did why was your nervous system so overactive that you needed to calm it down? Mm. Asking some of these other questions. Um so I I really feel lucky in that uh I've had the opportunity to really help develop and expand the trauma services at the treatment center that I work at, uh, where we really do focus on not just the symptoms of the addiction, but also the underlying causes. So this was one of the kind of important moments for me is seeing this underlying thread of trauma uh, in the patients I was working with, struggling with addiction, with the guys I was working with in the prison system, and also on a larger scale in uh, my, my social activism, where it seemed like <laughs> just about every social injustice Uh, could be framed through the lens of trauma and collective Mm. trauma.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It just made sense to me that like this trauma thing plays a big role in just about every social or emotional issue.
0: Right, And we should be
1: talking about it more. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some other important moments or turning points in my story. Uh, Another more personal one is traveling. Um, Before I got married, uh, which which again was another important turning turning point in my story, Um, but uh, I used to just grab a backpack and go. I mean, I would. I I got really creative and skillful at finding the cheapest way to travel, and I would find like a ridiculously cheap flight to a country I've never been to, you know, that (laughs) where I don't even speak other languages and don't know anybody there. Mm -hmm. I would go spend a week by myself in Mexico and explore or I would go to, uh, I did a big trip when I graduated with my bachelor's uh, circling the Mediterranean, Mm. uh, kind of exploring some of my ancestry in Europe, and then going to the Middle East uh, through Israel and Palestine and Jordan and Egypt and, and other parts of North Africa. Am I traveling I feel like my traveling really helped me grow as a human and as a therapist in that it it challenged me to learn ab- about other cultures, other religions, about world history, politics. And it was really a spiritual and existential experience for me. Um, it challenged me to get to know myself better. To, yeah. I mean, it really forced me to learn how to trust myself and, and listen to my body and to uh, develop trust in the goodness of strangers, no matter who they were.
0: Mm. Was it scary at all? <laughs> there were definitely
1: scary moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think just about all of the scary moments I had were misunderstandings
2: mm.
1: where like people, I thought people were yelling at me in Arabic or or a different language and I started to get defensive and then, you know, somebody translated for me and, and told me they were, they were just excited I was there and we're trying to teach oh. parts of the language or culture. Mm. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite travel stories and, and probably most powerful travel story I have. Uh, the first time I went to the Middle East, um, the, my, my family of course was, really scared for me. Uh, But I had this really powerful, like existential pull to the Middle East. And I was really curious about Islam and learning more. I had been studying Arabic for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, what was in the news a lot was uh, about the Bedouin tribes that were kidnapping Western tourists. So my biggest fear and my family's biggest fear was was me being kidnapped um, while I was over there. And through this really strange series of coincidences. um, I met this British businessman in Istanbul. And we had tea together. And I told him I was going to Jordan, the, the country Jordan. And he told me that he 30 years ago, he used to live and work there and had lost contact with his friends there. And he wanted me to try to reconnect him with his friends. So I kind of am, was amused by this idea and, you, you know, entertained it. Took his contact information and the name of his friend. Mm-hmm. Weeks later, I was in uh, Wadi Musa in Jordan. And I asked someone if they knew um, Ali Khalaf was his friend's name.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And just so happened, Ali Khalaf was was now the chief of the Bedouin tribe in that.
0: Wow.
1: (laughs) So this guy takes me to the chief of the Bedouin tribe in Wadi Musa. And there's all these Jordanian military officers there. And they're all sipping hot tea, chain smoking cigarettes. And Mm -hmm. I'm like a 21-year-old American by myself there, like Mm where? air force ones and my cargo short <laughs> <laughs> and trying to explain myself and uh i gave him the british businessman's phone number mm-hmm. and he calls him and starts crying on the phone wow and it like dawned upon me that through this strange series of synchronicities i had reconnected this old friendship mm. and the chief uh made me the special guest for the weekend that i was there
0: Um, You can't make this stuff up.
1: I know, right? (laughs) That's just like one example of like the really beautiful things that have happened. Um, I I find it to be like a metaphor for showing up and walking through fear, whether it's like out in the world or internally Mm -hmm. and exploring kind of those places, again, out in the world or those places within myself that I'm afraid to go. That there's often mm. really beautiful, unexpected, spontaneous things that happen uh, when we lean into that.
0: Mm. I was going to ask you if you could repeat that, but then I remembered that this is on recording, so I can rewind it when I listen to it again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was really powerful.
2: <laughs> Thanks. Yeah.
0: Where do you where do you see yourself in the future?
1: Yeah. So, kind of. Um, just going back to the other question, uh, with another kind of powerful moment, which will tie into this question too. Mm -hmm. Um, back in 2016, um, I had the opportunity to meet the co-founder of psychodrama Zerka Moreno, uh, just before she died. Uh, when I met her, she was in a coma, um, was 99 years old in, in, um, uh just outside Washington DC and my psychodrama trainer at the time took me there to meet her and and we kind of acted as if she could hear us I don't know if she could or couldn't um but when I introduced myself to her uh she sat up on on the bed and opened her eyes <laughs> and it was such a shock for all of us cuz she had been unresponsive uh, in a coma and she just opened her eyes and her and I looked at each other for a moment and then she laid back down and, and didn't really move much throughout the rest of the time we were there. But it was this deeply profound moment for me around being seen and encountering someone that I had read so much about and looked up mm-hmm. to. And in that moment, this commitment just came out of my mouth that, uh, I committed to helping to carry psychodrama to the next generation. Mm. Um, uh, I, I think in our psychodrama community, there was some fear um, that it's it was losing, well, it had really lost its popularity um, and people weren't talking about it, weren't practicing it, weren't training in it as much as they used to.
2: Mm.
1: And there was some fear that the model might slowly wither away and die uh, when the co-founder passed away. So a large part of what I, what I do in the world is about trying to honor this commitment to Zerka around really trying to introduce new, new people and young people to psychodrama through my teaching, training, presenting, even through this podcast. Mm.
2: Um,
1: I, I realized that in order to reach the next generation, um, I really need to help get psychodrama into academia. Yeah. It's funny that in the U.S., you could go through an entire psychology or social work uh, master's program and, and not hear psychodrama mentioned once. Right. Whereas internationally, on most other continents, you could, you could get a PhD in psychodrama or a master's degree mm-hmm. in psychodrama. It's considered an evidence-based practice in Europe and in other countries, mm. whereas here in the U.S. it's really been been marginalized, especially in academia. Mm. There's lots of reasons for that that I won't get into.
0: I was just going to ask, but I can leave that alone. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, why do you think that is? Um, yeah, yeah, I, but
1: now I could talk about it if you'd like. Um, sure. I think some of it is about the founder, Jacob Moreno. So Moreno is actually the person who coined the term group therapy and group psychotherapy right here in Philadelphia. Um, Although it's rare that his name is even mentioned in a group therapy class, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, His ideas were pretty radical. Um, He was a mystic. He was a scientist. He was a therapist. Uh, I think of him as a social worker, Mm -hmm. Uh, by training he was a psychiatrist he had this vision uh, that that really came to him through his his mystical experiences this vision that he called societry healing for society or psychiatry for society and his first attempt to create healing on a larger scale was using the theater in Vienna and he would you know try to try to create large um, change in larger audiences of people rather than just working one-on-one with clients. But his uh, ideas really challenged the power dynamics within psychoanalysis, Mm. uh, within traditional psychotherapy. He argued that in group therapy, um, everybody was a therapeutic agent. And this really ties in with what you and I know as social workers—you know the idea of mutual aid, mm-hmm. that everybody in the group, everybody in the community has inherent worth, has strengths, has valuable experience, and the ability to support each other and heal each other. But Moreno really emphasized this to the point where um, he challenged the authority of of the profession and argued that. Um, that the healing really needs to take place between group members rather than coming from the doctor or the expert. And he was really radical in a lot of the things that he did. Uh, his personality was, was pretty far out there as well, which I think limited his impact. Hmm. Um, he was very dramatic and eccentric and even self-identified himself as a megalomania. Um, I think he sometimes had difficult difficulty getting along with other professionals and, and had a number of rivals. Um, I think some of the answer to the question, too, is about the politics of evidence-based practice.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, That's a whole nother podcast series.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, when we talk about group therapy, of the published studies on group therapy are CBT studies. Mm -hmm. Like the majority of research grants are going to people who are studying CBT and cognitive behavioral therapies because they're easily manualized and replicated. Right. Whereas like psychodrama or or art therapy, you know, things that are more expressive and creative and spontaneous, it's a lot harder to manualize those. Right. Right. A lot of the expressive arts practitioners are much more action-based and less likely to be researchers, I found.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: I think this is some of the larger issue, although there is a large body of research that's emerging that's indicating that the experiential therapies are at least as effective as CBT uh, for a large number of different mental health conditions. Mm. Um, I just published a a trauma-focused psychodrama study uh, based on my work at Miramont that had some pretty promising results, uh, especially when we compared them to the results for other CBT programs. Uh, We we found a pretty significant decline in PTSD symptoms for the clients who participated in the study. Wow. Um, And I think another kind of answer to your question about the absence of psychodrama in our culture is the just the individualism in the United States. A mm-hmm. lot of other cultures that are more collective community based, um, just kind of more relationally oriented, more mm-hmm.
2: expressive,
1: have really adopted and run with psychodrama. Mm. Uh, like, there's actually more psychodramatists in Brazil than in any other country in the world.
0: Oh,
1: wow. Psychodrama is very popular in Europe. Um, in Asia, it's really becoming popular. Latin America. So in, in other places, it it's really been um, more integrated into the culture uh, and used outside of psychotherapy settings as well. It sounds like you're
0: you're playing a role in helping to uh, emphasize the importance of psychodrama here.
1: Yeah, I I like to think so. <laughs> At least I like to think I'm playing a small part in uh, advocating for change around this and contributing to the research base and, and educating folks about it. Um, I just find that There's places that psychodrama and and other experiential therapies allow us to go that just wouldn't be possible otherwise Mm -hmm. by sitting and talking in therapy. Right. I mean, in a psychodrama group, rather than just sitting and talking about somebody's trauma, we could act out connecting with the strengths that somebody needed to face their trauma. Mm. Or we could I usually don't reenact someone's trauma scene because I don't think that's helpful and it's potentially re-traumatizing. But I often will help a client put into action a corrective emotional experience using psychodrama. Mm. Where on the stage they could have an experience that they wished for in real life or that they needed to have, but weren't able to to experience. Mm and i think you know what what we're learning about neurobiology is that throughout the entire lifespan somebody's brain continues to change and adapt based right. on experiences that they have right and in the co-creation of a psychodrama scene although it's it's surplus reality it's not literally happening everybody's acting as if it's real and I really believe that it changes the brain in a way that the real life experience would have. That it it creates change, not just psychologically, but also neurobiologically.
0: Mm, mm. Um, and neurobiology is so complicated. We won't. We wouldn't be able to like capture fully. Um, the complexities of neuroscience and its connection to trauma but but this is a really interesting thought that even um thinking about a situation differently or imagining a different outcome that that could possibly create new connections in the brain that's really exciting
1: yeah, absolutely i mean there's uh, i'm a I like to think of myself as a student in neuroscience there's so much that I don't know about it but I think I know a thing or two about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's always changing uh, research that's coming out. I mean, I think it's been really interesting the past few decades here, the neurobiology of trauma research specifically. Right. In some research, uh, they found that when we ask a client to remember a trauma story, a memory, and we take a scan of the brain, the right hemisphere of the brain is overactive, and the left hemisphere, of the brain is a whole lot less active. Mm. And more precisely, the Broca's area, which is the language and speech center of the brain is completely offline. Mm-hmm. So if we're doing trauma therapy with a client and relying on words or language for expression, for communication, and for intervention, we're going to be really limited when working with trauma,
0: right? You
1: know, as, uh, as is becoming apparent, trauma really impacts us at levels in the body and brain below consciousness and below words. Mm-hmm. It, it really impacts the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like we really need to be including the body and other parts of the brain in our interventions in, in order to most be helpful for clients.
0: Absolutely. So do you see yourself expanding on the work that you're already doing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I'm just about to publish a book, uh, which will be the first book integrating the fields of social work and psychodrama.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, The idea kind of emerged from my, my uh, doctorate dissertation, which was Uh, On the same topic, although in my dissertation, I focused on creating a MSW curriculum, a course Mm -hmm. that would teach social work with groups and psychodrama as an integrated approach. So this is kind of meant to be the textbook for it. And it's, it's a mix of history, philosophy, theory, and then there's sections on practice with individuals, with groups, and with community. Mm. and one chapter on using psychodrama and experiential work as a teaching method and supervision approach.
0: Mm. It sounds um, amazing.
1: Yeah, thanks. I'll so, have to get you a copy when it comes out.
0: Yes, please. And um, where can people find more information about the book?
1: Um, so the, the book hasn't been announced yet, although it should be announced Pretty soon here. Maybe by the time that the uh, podcast is released, it'll be announced. Okay. Um, But uh, you can find information about my publications on my website. Okay. uh, Which is phoenixtraumacenter.com. And there's a a page with some more of my background and links to my my different projects and publications.
0: It it really sounds great. I'm sitting here smiling because I'm excited to see um, and learn from... Um, what it is that you've written and what you're contributing to the field.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot lately just about, and I'm sure you can relate with this too, based on all the work you do, how as professionals who are working with, I mean, you and I are sometimes working in academic spaces, sometimes working and training clinicians or future clinicians Mm -hmm. And at other times working with community members or clients Mm -hmm. and just how regard, you know, based on the context and the space that we're in, we're like forced to be multilingual. Right. (laughs) Like if I'm speaking to researchers, I'm talking with one type of language. If I'm, if I'm communicating with therapists, I'm speaking a slightly different language. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm working with clients or community members, um, describing concepts in different ways. Right. So the book is more focused on, um, educating clinicians and researchers. Although there are also a number of free resources on my website that I specifically wrote for community members and clients.
0: Sounds great. I'm always emphasizing that to my students too. Um, That we have to be able to be conversant in multiple languages. And don't take the language of research and qualitative and quantitative studies when you're going in and trying to connect with a client, with a child, with a teenager. Figure out how to talk like a regular person, but (laughs) also identify ways that you can incorporate that language. You're going to have to know that fancy language when when you're writing up a proposal or when you are engaging in research, or when you're trying to justify your idea or why something is important to a funder. Um, but it's absolutely like I just want to put an exclamation point next to um, <laughs> next to what you were mentioning, because I also advocate for that as well. Be conversant in multiple languages. And that that's part of what we have to do as social workers, as advocates and in our in our work as um, trauma people who are trauma-informed, because the language is going to be different. Um, the way, the manner of communicating is going to be different depending on the population that you're trying to connect with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like to think of it as meeting the person where they're at, regardless of who that person is in front of me or that group in front of me.
0: Right, right. So are there any other uh, resources that you would recommend to listeners?
1: Um yeah there's lots of different resources i could recommend um i mean some of the psychodrama stuff that i talked about just by its nature because it's so experiential and three-dimensional i'm not going to be able to fully explain it to anybody through words so if you're curious about that i I encourage you to to seek out a psychodrama group Mm -hmm. um for my own process i found any kind of mutual aid support group to be really important um I mean, there's some other personal growth processes I could recommend that really transformed um, my own experience in the world. Things like taking daily inventory, journaling, uh, doing, you know, really simple visioning processes for the future, Mm -hmm. creating like a concrete image of, you know, what kind of man do I want to be in the world? Mm -hmm. And what does that actually look like in different areas of my life? I kind of frame that through Maslow's work, of self-actualization and holding myself accountable to my vision.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, in terms of video resources, there's a ton of stuff out there, especially with YouTube and with podcasts, of course, Mm -hmm. Um, kind of in terms of larger societal, political, social issues. Some of my favorite people to listen to are Cornel West and Anthony and who's a, a, a lesser known poet a spoken word artist from the u k just find that both of them uh, i mean they're talking about politics and social issues, but I feel like they really approach it from a really from an existential spiritual humanistic approach, which I just really appreciate.
2: Mm.
1: I find that it kind of transcends some of the rhetoric that we normally use when we're talking about politics or social issues and really frames it, you know, human to human, uh, Mm. which, which I really appreciate.
0: That's important.
1: Um, There's a ton of books that I could recommend. Um, I'm a big fan of Rumi and Khalil Gibran, the poets. Um, Some of my favorite books that have kind of expanded my own perception of the world include Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, uh, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And then there's a number of professional books I could recommend as well. Um, I'm a big fan of Tian Dayton's books on psychodrama. Uh, She has a number of books about addiction, about trauma, and psychodrama, some of which are written for clients, uh, her most recent book being The Soulful Journey of Recovery, which I recommend to a lot of my clients.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then some of her books for professionals. Um, my favorite is is uh, the book called The Living Stage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then if you're also interested in psychodrama, there's another book that I find to be the most comprehensive overview of Moreno's Theory, Philosophy, and History. It's a book by John Nolte. Um, And uh, if I can remember the title correctly, I believe it's The Methods, Philosophy, and Theory of Jacob Moreno, the man who tried to become God, Mm. which is kind of a a spinoff on Moreno's existential philosophy. Uh, He argued that uh, every human being was God,
2: mm.
1: that every human being had the power to create and co-create. Every human being had agency in the world. Every human being uh, was full of worthiness and dignity and strengths that we should emphasize rather than looking at clients through a pathologizing lens like like the medical model.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Uh, So those are some of my favorite books, some, you know, for my professional self and others for my personal self.
0: Mm. I don't know how you have time to read either. Um, Just (laughs) after you mentioned all the different things that you're doing, um, researching, writing books, and um, just engaging in all this important work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing that really helped was uh, when I was a young adult and was really, I mean I'm still a young adult but when I was in my you know early 20s um I spent a lot of time challenging everything I thought I knew about the world and really considering how I wanted to live my life mm. after having some near death experiences it it really challenged me to spend my time wisely and I decided to get rid of television and not to engage in pop culture. Um, I mean, I went like seven or 10 years without a television, which, wow. you know, gives you an incredible amount of additional time in your life. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until I got married that uh, I had to compromise and we got a television again.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience?
1: Um, I think just coming back and reiterating the piece I was just talking about around everybody being inherently good and divine and and godlike, whatever language you want to use, based on you know your spiritual beliefs or existential beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that was transformative for me in my own personal and professional development was first seeing the goodness in other people and in my clients. Mm-hmm. Even in the guys that I worked with who were in prison doing life without parole, uh, being able to see the, the inherent goodness within them and to celebrate that. Mm-hmm. And after I had seen it regularly in other people and and looked for it, it challenged me to also see it in myself,
2: mm-hmm.
1: to really own my own strengths and goodness rather than downplaying them or you know trying to be smaller than i am um i mean it a lot of kind of that work happened before my professional studies Mm -hmm. and when i learned about marina's philosophy it just articulated something that i knew to be true based on my experience in the world Mm -hmm. and i think the important thing is is just to affirm for anyone that's listening. To affirm for myself again, because I always need to remind myself mm-hmm. too that uh, within every person is is the capacity for for goodness. It, it it exists within every person, no matter how traumatized somebody might be, no matter how addicted somebody might be, no matter what somebody may have done in the past, no matter what someone's behavior may have been, I truly believe that everybody within them has the capacity for goodness. Mm -hmm. And that when we treat people from that stance, that it creates a role demand and a role reciprocity for them to express that goodness too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's like the most important takeaway for me professionally, and personally, um, I often think of my work at its core, whether I'm with clients, students, or trainees, as helping people remember their their goodness. Mm -hmm. And it ties in with the the professional philosophy that I work from. Um, And it ties in with you know, just my experience in the world, um, there's, a, there's a lot more I could say about it, um, but I, th- I think I, I hope that was clear. Oh,
0: it was very clear um, and really inspirational and powerful. And I think that it will carry a lot of meaning to a lot of listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your vulnerability, for the resources that you shared, and also for talking to us about your part of, part of your professional and your personal journey.
1: Thanks, Megan. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast and to share some of what I learned personally and professionally.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corrado, and my work with the Stories Trauma Narrative Intervention, please visit my website, com. Also, feel free to follow my Stories social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.